Right, if you'll please take your Bibles and turn, speaking of Bibles, I hope you bring your Bible when you come to, to worship. Take your Bible and turn with me, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. Jesus takes kind of an abrupt break from his teaching on discipleship and his predictions about what's to come in Jerusalem, and it kind of is jarring, it almost seems out of place, but it reminds us that God's Word speaks to every issue of life. Even when situations come out of nowhere and surprise us, even when we find ourselves taken off guard or we're facing issues in our world that we'd rather just ignore and pretend aren't there, God's Word has something to say. And for those of you that have looked ahead, you understand that this is a difficult passage to preach on. Uh, it's sort of like dancing in, the, in a minefield this morning as we work through this passage. And that's one of the great things about preaching through a book of the Bible like Mark is God's Word has some things to say on issues and topics. And when it comes up, we address it. We look at what it has to say. And these issues, particularly divorce, is as touchy and debated a topic in the church today as it was 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day. And as I've approached my sermon preparation this week, I want you to know that I've done so with sensitivity, that some people in here do carry deep wounds related to this topic, to a previous marriage, to your personal experience with divorce, or because maybe you have, have experienced unfaithfulness in your marriage. I've seen how divorce affects people, uh, both my own family and uh, my friends, and, uh, and church members, so I understand the, the hurt, the pain that comes with that, and I approach this passage today uh, in humility and with great compassion. But at the same time, we have to approach it with honesty, with faithfulness to God's Word, with submission, submitting to the authority and the truth of God's Word and to the leading of His Spirit. Ultimately, when we wrestle with difficult issues like these, we should find comfort in Scripture. Because no matter what we feel, no matter what we're told, no matter what we're going through, God's Word is honest and it is unwavering in its truthfulness. Its truth does not change. And if you think about it this way, if we will trust our eternal destiny in the hands of Jesus and in what God's Word says, why would we not trust issues in our brief existence on this earth to His hands and what His Word says, even if those are areas that are difficult. So let's look together at Mark chapter 10, and I want to just look at the first two verses to set us up. He set out from there, meaning from the area around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you know, Jesus has spent most of Mark around Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel, and He has set from there, and He went to the region of Judea. He's heading to Jerusalem. And it says that he does so by going across the Jordan River. And the crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them. So Jesus, even as he is on his journey to Jerusalem, he still is teaching the crowds when they come around him. Uh, and, and as he's teaching, the Pharisees came to him to test him, saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, true to Mark, he doesn't tell us what Jesus is teaching. Mark likes to do that. He just tells us that Jesus is teaching. But based on the question the Pharisees ask, and what we know from other Gospels, what Jesus has taught, we can deduce what Jesus is teaching about here. And we can notice that, uh, that, the, that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. They want to get some ammunition 
from him on a hot-button topic that they can use against him, maybe even trying to get him in trouble with Herod Antipas because he's traveling now through Herod Antipas's region. If you remember, Herod Antipas had divorced his wife and married his sister-in-law. John the Baptist preached against it, and that's what caused him to lose his head. So maybe the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus in trouble with the law here. And this particular question may also have been prompted by Jesus' teachings. We know that Jesus taught on the sexual ethics of God's kingdom. It's something he addressed at length in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 19, as well as other places. And Jesus' teachings often dealt with how we are to relate to and treat other people in a way that is just and right. Like today, issues of marriage and parenting and sex were hot-button issues that needed some godly instruction in Jesus' day. And divorce was an especially relevant topic of debate, especially among the two rabbinical schools of thought. There were two rabbinical schools of thought in Jesus' day, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. Now, Mark doesn't go into the details of that the way Matthew does, because remember, Mark is writing to a Roman Christian audience that doesn't care about rabbinical debates. They're not interested in that. So he doesn't give the full question. But if we look at Matthew 19.3... Matthew puts it this way. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? And that's the debatable part that Mark doesn't include. On any grounds was the source of the debate among these rabbis. Now, the followers of Shammai, who held to a very strict interpretation of the law. In fact, most of the Pharisees that we meet in the Gospels were followers of Shammai. They were very strict in their interpretation, they believed on any grounds meant divorce was permitted only in the case of indecency. The, the, mainly the wife, because the wife had no recourse to divorce the husband in that day. So if the wife was being unfaithful in some way, not adulterous, because what was the penalty for adultery then? It was murder. It was, it was killing them, executing them, right? Death, not divorce. So not adultery, but Maybe she was being a little indecent. Maybe she was being a little forward with with another man. Something that was certainly scandalous. But the followers of Hillel, who were much more lenient, they were more interested in the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. And in fact, Jesus, his teachings tended to line up more with Hillel. Uh, Followers of Hillel would have have agreed more with Jesus than than the typical Pharisee, but not in this case. In this case, the followers of Hillel taught that on any grounds meant just that, any grounds. So literally, the rabbis taught that if the wife were to burn her husband's supper, he could divorce her. If she said something nasty about his mother, he could divorce her. If he went out and saw somebody more attractive, he could write her a certificate of divorce and send her away, and it was over. Women then had no legal recourse. They had no response to that whatsoever. They couldn't instigate a divorce and they couldn't do anything to stop one. Now, Jesus isn't interested on whose side he comes down on. He could care less whether people thought he was on Hillel's side or Shammai's side. Today, we could say Jesus could care less whether he comes down on the Republican side or the Democrat side. He's not interested in labels like liberal, progressive, conservative, or libertarian. He doesn't care. Jesus is above and beyond that sort of human reasoning because Jesus isn't giving us an opinion or an interpretation. He's giving us the truth. Jesus is the truth. And it's instructive for us to notice how Jesus responds 
to this question about a current cultural issue regarding ethics and morality because we've got plenty of those around today. How are we to respond to those? Look what Jesus does in verse 3. He replied to them, What did Moses command you? So how did Jesus answer this question? Did He take an opinion poll? Did He consult the, the latest statistics and social science journals? Did He delve into His opinions or feelings or maybe share an anecdotal story about how a friend or a family member actually experienced personal growth and fulfillment through their divorce? No. What did Jesus do? He went straight to the Word of God. He pointed them back to the Bible. What did Moses command you? That's how we should respond to issues like this. Not that we can't use science or statistics or personal stories to help us relate with people or understand a different perspective or somebody's personal experience. But when it comes to forming our worldview and our perspectives on morality, we need to ground ourselves in the Word of God. What does God's Word say about this issue? Look at verse 4. They responded... Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. Now see, both Hillel and Shammai, both of those views on divorce were based on a misreading of Deuteronomy 24.1. So let's look at the source material here. What did Moses say? If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, He may write her a a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from his house. Jesus is clarifying that God, through Moses, permitted divorce. He didn't command it. He certainly didn't condone it. It's a permission, and it's a permission that's not a reflection of God's heart. It's a reflection of our hearts. Our hearts that are hardened and corrupted by sin. So the Pharisees, they pointed back to the law of Moses, but Jesus went beyond that. He pointed something far beyond the law of Moses. He went all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis 1 and 2. The Pharisees were focused on debating marriage. Jesus wanted to instruct us on the meaning of marriage. So look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So so let's put this in context. Jesus told them, He wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. That's Moses. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is the divine plan. This is God's ideal For human flourishing. And Jesus says that this is the way it was meant to be from the beginning of creation. Jesus is offering us something foundational to marriage. The fundamental truths of how God created us. How He intends us to relate to each other as male and female. As families. As a society. And I want us to use these few verses to outline some fundamental truths about marriage. According to Genesis and Jesus. Not according to David. And if someone wants to know what Jesus is teaching about these things, about gender and sexuality and marriage, here you are. Here's Jesus' words about these topics that are so relevant to us today. And the first fundamental truth I want us to look at is the foundation of marriage. 
God's design for marriage. Jesus goes back beyond Deuteronomy to Genesis 1.27 that says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's amazing. Genesis 1-3 through tells us really everything we need to know about humanity. Beginning with the sacredness of all people. Our infinite worth as bearers of the image of the infinitely worthy God. And you know what that means? That means that every person you ever see, talk to, encounter, meet, everyone, every person, every person should be treated with love and value and dignity. No ifs, ands, or buts. That's the first thing. But the second thing we see is that God made us in His image, male and female. This tells us that gender and sexuality are gifts from God to be used for His glory and our good. These things allow men and women to express their love and commitment to one another with intimacy and submission and sacrifice in a way that honors the image of God in each other. And they they are what allow humanity to fulfill God's command to multiply and fill the earth. We call this commitment that allows these things to happen marriage. And help us use those gifts in the best way. God gave us commands not to be oppressive, not to rob us of, of joy, but to free us from selfishness and from sin's oppression so that we can live lives of fullness and harmony and joy. Those commands are there to protect us and marriage. Listen, the gender theories of today, especially the transgender ideology, they depend on a lie. A lie that says that our biological sex can be wrong. They even reject the reality of the binary sexes. But the Bible tells us God created us male and female and thousands of years of human history and and legal precedent and philosophy, not to mention biology and genetics, attest to the reality of the binary sexes of male and female. And God created us in His image, male and female, before sin entered the picture. That means that our sex, whether we are male or female, is good. That's good. And it's good because men and women demonstrate different aspects of of God's nature in a way the others cannot. We are created in His image, male and female. That means that men get to reflect a part of God's image that women don't, and women get to reflect a part of God's image that men don't. We need each other to give a clear picture of who God is. But we understand we don't live purely in a Genesis 1 and 2 world, do we? We live in a good world, created by God, but marred, twisted, broken by the events of Genesis 3. And naturally, this has impacted us in every way, sexually, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, relationally. Remember, the very first result of Adam and Eve's sin was shame over their bodies. Remember that? They covered themselves to hide from each other. They hid behind a bush to hide from God because they were afraid, because they were naked. They were ashamed of the bodies God gave them, ashamed of the gender God had made them. 
So we should not be surprised by the confusion and brokenness in our world when it comes to gender and sexuality and marriage. Satan's been lying to people about these things from the beginning and he lies to us today about them still. And like Adam and Eve, our culture has rejected God's order and has set up a morality of its own. A reality that's not based on revealed Scripture. A reality that's not based on any ultimate truth. A morality that's, that's not based on the undeniable nature of reality. It's a morality that's set up by consensus. By opinion poll. Our culture effectively is saying, who needs God to tell me what I can and can't do, who I am and am not? We want to be the ultimate authority and decide for ourselves what is right and what is true. Listen, nobody denies the reality of gender dysphoria. Nobody denies the reality that because of sin, people can be confused and, and there can be a conflict between their sense of self and their body. The difference is the Christian worldview considers the body to be right and the belief to be wrong. But the current worldview has that backwards. It's what you believe that's correct. Your body is what needs to be brought into submission. But here's the good news. The good news is that God has given us His truth. He's given us the truth. And through Jesus, God is at work redeeming sinners, rescuing people from the brokenness and the lies of sin. Jesus is not only the healer of bodies, but also of the confusion of gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction and the healer of sick and broken marriages. Based on the givenness of our gendered selves, we receive this from God. Jesus says it is for this reason that a man and a woman are joined together in marriage. And that brings us to the second fundamental truth, the formation of marriage. Involving this leaving and cleaving. So G Jesus has gone from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. In Genesis 2.24 it says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to leave your parents and cleave to your wife? Well, the Greek word for leave literally means to leave behind. To depart. It's the word we might use if you're going on a trip and you depart from home to go somewhere else. Cleaving literally means being glued together. Being joined together in a permanent fashion. That's what that word means. And together, leaving and cleaving tells us that the marriage relationship is something that is unique and exclusive. It's nothing like the relationship between parents and children, between siblings, or even between friends. Marriage is a relationship that is set apart and special. But why is it that the husband must leave his, his father, mother, and cleave to his wife? Why isn't it the other way around? Because that tells us that the fundamental duty of the husband is especially significant. His priority is no longer his parents, his past, or his pleasures. His priority is his wife. His love for her must transcend all other loves and commitments in this world, except, of course, your love for and commitment to Jesus, which is expressed and how you love and care for your wife. And Paul tells us that when a husband loves his wife in this way, he is powerfully portraying Jesus' sacrificial and selfless love for his bride, the church, as he left his Father in heaven and came to be united with us. 
And when Paul writes about that in Ephesians 5, like Jesus, he also points back to Genesis 1 and 2. But then Paul overlays the events of the cross and the tomb. He overlays the gospel on marriage. He says that marriage should reflect Jesus' love for the church, His bride, who He sacrificially laid down His life for. And that tells us the love between a husband and a wife should be a self-sacrificing, submitting, servant-hearted love. And like Jesus' commitment to those of us who trust in Him, it's a love that should be steadfast and never failing. As I constantly remind couples and congregations when I do weddings, marriage is an enduring and exclusive partnership of love and devotion whereby God takes two equal yet distinct individuals and makes them one. That's the formation of marriage. We leave behind the past and we cleave, we become united in a permanent way with our spouse. And that brings us to the fusion that happens in marriage. It's an intimate bond that takes place there. Now, our culture has marriage all backwards. You know, it emphasizes this romanticized, sentimental, fairy tale view of marriage, you know, where you, you live happily ever after, and, and the expectation is that your spouse is going to somehow complete you and make you whole. But there's, you know, as with many things, a kernel of truth there. I mean, the whole image of the two becoming one flesh is this idea of us being able to complete something in each other. You know, it's like two puzzle pieces that come together to present the picture. But that doesn't mean that sex and marriage exist solely for your personal happiness and fulfillment. For one thing, when you place an expectation on somebody that they're going to fix you or that they're going to somehow complete you or they're going to help you experience some sort of self-personal fulfillment, you know what you've done to that person? You've turned them into a god. You've idolized them and put them on a pedestal. There's only one person in our life we should turn to for those kinds of deep, personal, spiritual needs, and that's Jesus Christ, not your spouse. Your spouse is not God. And many of you are saying, you got that right. <laughs> but we also need to see that marriage is a calling. Listen, marriage is not a right. Marriage is not a foregone conclusion. Marriage is not something that everyone is entitled to have. If there's nothing else that the rampant divorce in our culture has showed us, it's that not everyone is called to be married. And it's a shame that so many lives have to be damaged before people can realize this. Marriage is a calling. And it's a commitment. And it isn't about you. It's about your spouse. It's about your children. And ultimately, it's about Jesus Christ and His gospel. It's not about you. Now, this, of course, should go without saying, but given today's culture, there is obviously a physical sexual dimension to the idea of the two becoming one flesh. And the Greek word that's used there in Mark chapter 10 is the word sarx. It's where we get the word sarcophagus from, right? Where you put a body. So this word means literal body, flesh, not just becoming one in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense. The Hebrew word used in Genesis is also often translated meat. So it's very much a physical sort of idea. The Bible is clear that one of the fundamental purposes of marriage is procreation. God commanded 
humanity as He did all living things to be fruitful and to multiply after their kind. And to accommodate this, God created the concept of sexual reproduction, of male and female. But today, marriage has been redefined to be only about fulfilling the personal desires of two adults regardless of their gender and without any thought whatsoever to children. Ryan T. Anderson, who I highly recommend, he writes extensively on this, he offers this assessment. In recent decades, marriage has been weakened by a revisionist view that is more about adults' desires than children's needs. This reduces marriage to a system to approve emotional bonds or distribute legal privileges. In essence... The push for same-sex marriage reduces that intimate bond of marriage to something that's just for personal fulfillment and enjoyment. And that's all. It makes marriage exactly what I said it wasn't. It's not about me. It's not about you. But the redefinition of marriage has made it all about you. Anderson goes on to give this succinct summary of the biblical and, you know, before 15 minutes ago, widely held view of marriage and why it should matter to everyone. He says, marriage is based on the truth that men and women are complementary. The biological fact that reproduction depends on a man and a woman and the reality that children need a father and a mother. Redefining marriage does not simply expand the existing understanding of marriage. It rejects these truths. Listen to this sentence. Marriage is society's least restrictive means of ensuring the well-being of children. What happens... When marriages fall apart, what happens when children are raised in homes by just a mom or just a dad? Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes what happens? The government has to step in more, doesn't it? Government programs have to fill in that gap. And so he says, by encouraging the norms of marriage, monogamy, sexual exclusivity, and permanence, the state strengthens civil society and reduces its own role. The future of this country depends on the future of marriage. The one flesh bond of marriage only works. It only makes sense between a man and a woman committed to each other at the exclusion of all others. And whether that marriage actually produces children or not does not negate the fundamental understanding of why God created marriage. That's the fusion of marriage, the the, 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 in, the the intimate bond that happens as the two become one flesh. But then we see the fixture of marriage. Not only is it an intimate bond, it's an inseparable bond. Without a doubt, Jesus saw marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And until recently, that lifelong commitment part used to be the controversial part of what Jesus said. I think few of us would argue that the ideal for marriage is until death do us part. Listen, I've done many marriages, many weddings. And when that, when that groom and bride stand there and they say those vows to each other and they say till death do us part, they mean it. There's not a one of them standing there that day thinking about divorce. They believe they're going to be together for the rest of their lives. And God clearly states His desire for such a lifelong commitment, this inseparable bond between husband and wife. He talks about it from Genesis to Jesus, from Proverbs to Paul. God may have permitted divorce, but time and again, He celebrates marriage. He created it. God is the one who joins together a husband and a wife. And Jesus says, if God joins them together, how can anyone presume to separate it? 
That's akin to someone presuming to take a life that God has given. God has some strong words about this in Malachi chapter 2. He says, The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one that he should protect. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Now, some translations uh, translate that part that says uh, the man who hates and divorces his wife. They translate that to say that God hates divorce. Either way, I think the text is clear. God hates divorce. I think that God sees divorce like He sees death. It's an intruder, an interruption in His good creation, in His divine order. And that brings us to the final fundamental truth here, and that's the failure of marriage, which is divorce. Let's pick it up in verses 10 through 12. So when they were in the house again, as often happens, Jesus and the disciples then retreat from the public into a house, and that's where the disciples ask questions, and they they dig a little bit deeper. The disciples questioned Him about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So remember, Jesus answered the question about divorce by focusing on the fundamental truths of marriage. But the disciples, once again, failed to appreciate what Jesus is saying, so they go back to the question of divorce again. I mean, Jesus basically threw all the loopholes on marriage of the Pharisees. He threw them out the window. And this was huge. This was revolutionary. So the disciples are struggling with what this means. Now, as I said earlier, we live in a world after Genesis 3. Because of sin and the hardness of the human heart, our world is broken. And all too often that brokenness is reflected in broken marriages. Listen to me clearly. God's heart is always to heal what is broken. His heart is always for restoration and reconciliation. But God also mercifully makes allowance and gives protective instruction for dealing with those marriages that just cannot be healed. The Pharisees use these permissions and these instructions as a license to justify their self-centered behavior, and to cheapen the marriage vows. They saw divorce as a convenient way out of an unhappy relationship. They saw it as a means of personal fulfillment, much as some people do today. We have to acknowledge that divorce exists because of our hard hearts. Listen, hard hearts don't happen overnight. They can take years to develop. Divorce happens because someone in that marriage hasn't been obeying God. They've not been living out His intention for marriage. Maybe there's been a lack of true Christian submission. A lack of selfless service and sacrificial love. Maybe somebody's been unwilling to forgive. Or maybe it's just selfishness. Now, of course, in case of abusiveness or neglect, excuse me, or adultery, Redictions that, that make life difficult, if not dangerous, of course, in those situations, sometimes divorce is the only, is the only solution. The lesser of two evils, if you will. The Bible only gives us three examples of when divorce is permissible. One, Jesus mentions, is, un, is marital unfaithfulness. If one spouse is being unfaithful. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 mentions divorce when an unbelieving spouse just walks away and abandons the family. 
ostensibly because he refuses to or she refuses to convert uh, to Christianity. And then the Old Testament gives allowance for divorce in cases of neglect and abuse. And, and of course, the interpretation of these can be, can be very wide. But I want us to be clear. Jesus is not substituting one form of legalism with another in his teaching. <clears throat> He's illustrating something about the sanctity of marriage and the gravity of divorce, which is never God's ideal. Again, among Christians, divorce should never be celebrated. It should always be mourned. We have to realize that if someone divorces and remarries within biblical guidelines, that itself is not a sin, even though it can be the result of sin. Divorce is like death. It's an intrusion into God's very good creation. It's not a part of His plan or His intent for us. And like death, it exists because of sin. As Jesus says, it's because of the hardness of our hearts. In his book, Gray Areas, Mike Glenn writes this. He says, the decision to divorce or not is not ours to make. It's God's. If you've done everything in your power to reconcile the marriage, and God has given you permission to leave, then you may leave. But reconciliation and the attempt to salvage the marriage commitment should always be the first priority. Now, what can we do as churches? How can we put our money where, the, where our mouth is on this? We should be celebrating, honoring, and strengthening marriages. We should grieve every divorce and strive to reduce the number of divorces, especially among believers. And there's a, a few things we can do to make that more likely. We, first of all, need to take marriage more seriously, respecting its sacredness and explaining its meaning and purpose from the pulpit and in Sunday school classes and premarital counseling, and even in wedding ceremonies, which I, I try to do. Second, our church should be a safe place for married and engaged couples to talk about their relationships, to strengthen or prepare for their marriages so that those small cracks and faults and stresses don't become gaping chasms. And we need to be a community where older married couples are taking younger married couples under their wings to mentor them and to help walk with them through those difficult times. We need to be a safe place where people can be honest about their struggles and doubts, where they can find hope and help and healing, not empty platitudes, not plastered on smiles, and certainly not judgmental looks. And third, we must help those who have been touched by divorce to find healing, grace, and forgiveness. We need to be ready to help them pick up the pieces. Find God's healing balm for their wounds. Help them offer forgiveness where that's necessary and give them the support they need to move forward. Thank God that He's a God of mercy and grace. Amen? He's a God of mercy and grace. God is an expert at bringing beauty from the ashes and life from death. And when a marriage fails, remember that God's Word always, always, always gets the last word. God's grace reigns supreme. And if marriage is a part of your past, or if divorce is a part of your past, you know where that divorce remains? In your past. God is interested in who you are today and in helping you move forward in a way that glorifies Him and honors the image of God in the relationships in your life. But listen, that's true for every failure. That's true for every sin. That's true for every setback in our lives. When we are in Christ, those things are behind us. 
We don't bring them with us. Jesus died and rose from the grave so that we could become a part of His family. Jesus offers to wash away your sins, to leave your past in the past. He wants to do away with the shame and bring newness of life to you. And listen, Jesus' love will never walk out on you. Jesus' love will always be faithful and true to you, no matter what. No matter what you've done. Listen, this morning, God already knows all the skeletons in your closet. You're not hiding any secrets from Him, and He loves you anyway. And He beckons you to come, to trust in Him. He wants to give you a fresh start, a new beginning. He wants to set you free if you would come. Maybe this morning here in a minute as we sing, you need to come and say, I want to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, I've got, I've got a past that I'm ashamed of. Yes, I've done things that I know were wrong. Yes, I carry woundedness with me right now and I want Jesus to heal my heart and my soul. I want Him to heal my relationships and make me new. This morning, you can experience that today. Maybe this morning He's calling you to unite with this church. Now, the church is the bride of Christ and Paul says that Jesus is preparing His bride and cleansing His bride for His return. You know what that means? That means that we're not perfect That means that we're in process. And listen, we're not a perfect church. But we invite you to join us on the journey of becoming more like Jesus. And maybe this morning, God is convicting you and you need to recommit your life as a husband, as a wife, as a mother or father. You need to recommit yourself to marital fidelity, to sexual purity. Maybe you need to to say, you know, I need to be working on my relationship with my spouse and And I've been selfish and I've been holding on to the past and I need to lay these things down. Listen, this altar is open for you to come and pray. And I'll be standing here. No judgment. No judgment. Maybe you need to come and pray for somebody you know that's struggling. Maybe you've got to come and pray about something not at all related to anything I've said today. But if God is speaking to your heart, that's what this time is about. For you to respond, for you to pray, for you to recommit yourself. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father... Thank You for loving us as we are. Lord, You know everything we've said, everything we've thought, everything we've done. You know our wounds. You know our mistakes. And Father, You don't ask us to go back and to do anything with those, to fix them in any way. You only ask us to confess them to You, to place them in Your hand, and to receive Your grace and forgiveness. For Your Spirit to indwell us and help us to turn away from those sinful choices and begin to walk in newness of life in the footsteps of Jesus. And if there's anyone here today that needs to do that, I pray they would. Father, help us to come alongside each other, to encourage one another, to pray for each other, to hold confidences with each other. God, may we be a family of faith that we can truly struggle and wrestle with our issues with people that we trust and love and we can help each other along. Lord, none of us have any room to judge anyone because we all have our own brokenness and our own issues. They just might be different from someone else's. But Father, what we must all do is we must all cling to the truth of Your Word and we must walk in faith and trust in Your intention for us. Not what the world says, not what maybe we feel, but what You say. Believing that You will see us through the storm and that it's better on the other side. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.